<clears throat> so our, for our sermon today, we're actually going to pick up with the series that we were in. Last week we took a little one-week break, but for quite a while now, a couple months, we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and we're going to still be in the Gospel of Matthew. We're actually going to be right at the end of it, right at the end of, of the whole Gospel. It's Matthew chapter 28. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 20, just those last few verses in this Gospel. And of course, what we're going to see here, very well-known verses here, uh, we're going to see the Great Commission. And so I want to just really dive right in here. This is a passage that we, we certainly know well as Christians. We've probably heard sermons on it before, read it a number of times, been impacted by it, of course. But I really want to take a look at it, really dig deep and, and see what's in here. What is uh, the command, this commissioning that we have been given as followers of Christ? And sort of really flesh that out and challenge us, of course, ultimately, to really live it out faithfully in our daily lives. So let's jump right in. We're at Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 16 and reading on through to the end. It says, Then the eleven disciples, so we have the twelve minus Judas at this point, then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, I do want to sort of explain a little bit and, and really retranslate this a little bit. Um, not that this is the heart of the Great Commission. This is sort of setting the context for the verses that are to come uh, in dealing with the Great Commission. But nonetheless, I, I want us to really understand maybe uh, really a little better what's going on here and, and translate it a little bit differently. A little more literally, for starters, I'm going to sort of call attention to, the, to some, some doubted. Uh, really, I would say that it's not some, and I'll talk about that, but it's all of them. And also doubted, what that, that word really means, and certainly doubted is a possible interpretation, but I think it should be translated a little bit differently. So when they saw him, they worshipped him. That's good. I'm fine with all of that. But then it says, but some doubted. Uh, and the word here used is sort of the generic word that would be used for they. So it would be, but when they saw him, they worshipped him, but they doubted. Again, I'm going to change doubted here a little bit, but for the time being, I'll at least use that. Uh, now, in certain usages, it can be used in sort of a partitive sense, meaning some of that group uh, doubted in this sense. So that's possible. I don't want to say that some is impossible. Uh, but sort of the natural reading, the natural rendering of this is absolutely when they saw him, they worshipped him, but they doubted. And so I'd say we don't have the case here that, well, you have the 11 disciples here and, and some of them, or at least mo maybe most of them worshipped him, but hey, you know, you have a little one or two, a few stragglers, and they're just sort of doubting. They're not sure. They, they still, they're, they're not quite there with, with true faith and they just have their doubts and whatnot. That's not what's being said here, right? They all worshipped him and then they all doubted. But again, I'm going to say that, that doubted isn't the right translation here. Uh, there's another Greek word that's sort of the typical stock word for doubted, and that's not the word that's used here. Uh, a different word is used. And, and yes, it can mean, mean doubt, but I'd say it, it, it sort of at its root means really very literally a double stance. So it's sort of to have, uh, you know, sort of two stances uh, to sort of waver in a sense, uh, sort of have two mindsets, uh, that sort of a sense. So it can mean to doubt. It could be, you know, my two stances are on the one hand, I, I, I sort of believe this, but then there's also part of me that, that doesn't believe and is doubting, you know, so, so there can be the sense in which this can mean to doubt, uh, but it doesn't have to. It can mean, it mean sort of a, a double 
stance or wavering in, in some sort of uh, other way. Just to use it in some sort of example today, I, you know, I could be out for lunch and thinking, you know, oh, what do I want to get to drink? Do I want Coke or do I want Sprite for the drink? And you know, well, I like Coke. I mean, that's usually what I bring on Sunday mornings. You're probably thinking, Steve, yeah, we all know you're going to pick the Coke. And in reality, that would be my pick. But maybe I'm just sort of feeling like Sprite. Sometimes I like a change and I'm sort of wavering between the two. Do I want Coke? Do I want Sprite? I'm not doubting anything. It's not like I, I'm just doubting, is Coke a real thing? I, you know, I don't know. Uh, it, it's wavering. It's sort of a double stance of I feel this on the one hand, but I feel that on the other hand as well. And it doesn't have to be in relation to belief, like I'm just doubting something. And so what I'd say here, what's really going on is what it's saying is when they saw him, they worshipped him, but they were hesitant, right? That's, that's part of the way in which sort of this double stance can play out. There can be sort of a hesitation. That's a typical way of translating this word. And here's the way in which I would say they were hesitating or wavering. So what happens, right, at this point, right, they, they've come to this mountain where Jesus had told them to go. They see him, and they're going to worship him, and indeed they do, right? But you can tell that they still are standing far off, because if we actually read on into verse 18, it says, then, right, after they worshiped him and were hesitant in some way, then Jesus came to them, right? So the reality is, here's what's happening. They show up. Here's Jesus. At this point, right, they, they totally understand. It's not to say that before his death and resurrection, they didn't understand that he was, you know, the son of God and so forth, but their eyes have been all the more open to it, and, and they have just a deeper sense of this. This is, this is God the Son himself, who, who is in the flesh, become man just like us. What did he do? He went to a cross. He paid for sin. He rose from the dead victorious, and here he is, the living, awesome, all-powerful God right here before us, and we are about to enter into his presence and worship him. And what I would say is there's a hesitation, not in the sense of should we worship him or not. They understand. They're, they're, they totally understand who he is. There's no doubt about it. They're not wavering in their belief. They understand it, and they know that they are to bow down and worship him, but there's a hesitation in the sense of who are we, mere men, sinful, wretched creatures, who are we to enter into the presence of, of God himself, God the Son, and bow down and worship him? And so in a sense, there's this hesitation, there's this sort of wavering or double stance of, of I know I need to worship him, and I'm sort of beginning to approach him to worship him, and yet there's this sense of sort of this double stance of, yes, I want to approach and worship him, but who am I to even draw near to God? I am utterly unworthy to even draw near. And so instead, they sort of stay far away. They still worship him, but there's just sort of this hesitation to draw near, and they worship at a distance. That's sort of this double stance or wavering or hesitation, which would be a better way of translating it. That's what's going on. It's not like, man, these disciples, like, they're still doubting. They, they still have their doubts. They're, they're, they still have unbelief. That's not what's going on. No, they get there. They see Jesus. They know totally who he is. There is no doubt in their mind. They know what he's done, they know what he's accomplished, and the response is to worship him, but there is just this hesitation of, I am utterly unworthy, right? Try to put yourself in their shoes. You're, you're standing there, and there's Jesus, God the Son, and you can imagine there's a sense of hesitation of, yes, even though I know my sin's been paid for, I have access to God, there's still this sense of, I'm utterly unworthy, I, I am a sinful wretch, and he is God himself, 
holy, infinite in every good and glorious way, and who am I to draw near to his presence? And so that's, that's sort of the double stance, the wavering, the hesitation that's going on. It's not that they have this doubting of, of is he really Jesus? Did he really rise from the dead? Uh, they get that at this point. There isn't that sort of a doubt. There's just a hesitation as sinful people to draw near to God himself, understanding, hey, who are we? We are utterly unworthy. And so they sort of hesitate. They still worship. They know they're going to worship, right? That's, nothing's going to stop them from doing that, but there's just this hesitation to draw near as they worship. And so they stay far off. That's what's being said here. That's a better translation. And again, it's all of them. It's not some. So when they saw him, they worshiped him, but they were hesitant to draw near and worship, right? That, I would say, is, is the sense and sort of how to translate this and understand it right, understanding who Jesus is, there was a hesitation to draw near. So now reading on, right, so they're sort of still far off because of their hesitation understanding who he is and sort of feeling utterly unworthy to draw near to God the Son. They're sort of still far off as they're worshiping, so Jesus comes to them. Verse 18, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And I want to start with verse 18. We've sort of already done 16 and 17. But it's easy to want to jump into verse 19. And therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, right, and the Holy Spirit, on and on. And sort of jump right into the heart of, of this commissioning, this command, and overlook verse 18, which really is, is awfully significant. And what does Jesus say in verse 18? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right? And, and this sort of sets the stage now for this commissioning, this command, this mandate that he gives to his disciples. And of course, he's giving it to the 11 disciples, uh, and, and certainly there's a special sense in which this is given to them. But really, all of us as followers of Christ are invited into this and are given this commissioning, the same command as well. But sort of this is, this is how he sets it up. As he's about to give the command, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I'd say this really is saying two things. First of all, it's stating, hey, uh, I'm the one who has all authority, and so it adds force and, and sort of emphasis to his command. It's not, I'm somebody with some sort of mediocre degree of authority who's issuing you some sort of command to go and make disciples of all nations. No, I, I'm God himself, God the Son, who's overall, who has infinite authority right over everything that is, and I, as that one, am giving you, or about to give you in the next verse, this command. So it adds weightiness to the command. This isn't just someone with a little bit of authority issuing a command. This is the one with all authority who is issuing this command, this commissioning. And so it adds that, that weightiness and that emphasis to the command. But I'd say that a little more is going on as well. And what he's saying is that he isn't just the one who has authority over... Israel or Judah. He isn't just sort of the king or master or lord of the Jews, and therefore the Jews ought to bow down and worship him, and so they should go and make disciples amongst the Jews. But what he's saying here is, I'm the one who has authority, who is lord and master over all, over all the nations out there, over the whole cosmos, and therefore it's only right and proper that people from everywhere ought to acknowledge me as lord and bow down before me and serve me and follow me and be, be my disciples. Uh, Right? I'm not just the master of, 
of the Jewish people. I'm the master and Lord. I have authority over all nations, and so people from all nations need to acknowledge me as, as God, as the one who has authority over all, need to be my disciples and follow me. So I'd say that's also the sense in which he's saying this. He's not just saying, I have all authority, and that adds weightiness to my command. But he's saying, if I'm the one who has authority over all, if I am the Lord over all, if I'm the master over all, then people from everywhere need to acknowledge that and follow me. And so that's sort of the context in which he is, is sort of uh, gives this command. He sort of sets up the command that he's about to give, this commissioning by saying that, adding this weightiness to his command and, and also emphasizing that, of course, the making of disciples is to extend over the whole of the earth because he is master over the whole of the earth. So he goes on, verse 19 here, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And then he goes on, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So what, what's at the heart of this, this command is to go and make disciples, right? They are to make disciples. This is for the 11, right? The 12 minus Judas at this point. And certainly there's a special sense in which this is given to them as they are to go and make disciples everywhere they go. And they certainly go all over the place and make disciples for Christ, make followers of Christ. And so it's given specifically to them, but, but quite clearly we also are invited into this calling, this mission that is God's mission himself to go and reach people and, and for his kingdom, kingdom, bring them into the fold. We're invited into this. And it's not like, oh, the 11 are to go and carry this out and then it's done, it's accomplished, and the rest of the church can just ignore it. No big deal. It's just for the 11. Clearly, the whole of the church, all who are followers of Christ, are invited into this and are given this command. But certainly it's in a special way given to them. But what's at the heart of it is this making of disciples. This is what they are called to do, to go and make disciples, go and make followers of Christ. But what we see in this, I think often what we do is, as we think about this, we sort of see solely the evangelistic side of making disciples. And we sort of overlook the, what we would typically call the discipleship side of making disciples. Clearly what Jesus has in mind here when he says, go and make disciples, is the idea of making faithful followers of him. Right? And so there's the evangelistic side, but also the importance of discipling and training people up in the faith, not just sort of leaving them as sort of this new convert and saying, oh, you're good, you're on your own, no need for discipleship. <clears throat> and we see this as Jesus brings evangelism and discipleship together in this command uh, to make disciples. We see it. He sort of fleshes out what making disciples is and what it looks like. <clears throat> he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And now he tells us what that entails, what that looks like. First, he mentions the evangelistic side of it, which is baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, right? Clearly, what's being said here is as you go and as you follow this command to make disciples, you're going to go, you're going to preach the truth of the gospel, people are going to respond with repentance and faith, and then you baptize them, right? This is the evangelistic side. But it's not like that's how it ends. It's not like, oh, well, once you go and you get some decisions for Christ, you get some conversions, you baptize them, that's great. Now they're, they're followers of mine, and, and, and great, done. Right? But no, he goes on. There's the evangelistic side, but again, he wants faithful followers, not people who, yet they're members of the kingdom, they're technically followers of mine, but, but unfaithful, immature. No, he wants faithful followers of his from all nations, which involves, yes, the evangelistic side, which, as he says here, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But then he goes on and speaks to the discipleship side and teaching them 
to obey everything I have commanded you. Right? It's not just the go and get decisions for me, uh, get people to convert, to come to repentance and faith, which ultimately is the work of the Holy Spirit. We just do our part of, of preaching the gospel, but ultimately the Spirit's going to change hearts uh, and lead people to repentance and faith. But he's saying it's not just that. It's not just, hey, we want conversions and then we're done, but he wants real followers, real disciples, mature ones, and so that involves this discipling, this training of people in the faith. It's not like they're a new convert and now we just sort of like leave them on their own, hope Hopefully they, they grow in the faith a little bit and whatnot. No, he says, no, this is also part of this calling of making disciples, which involves teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And then how does he close this out? He says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Right? And this is, this is important. It's not like, oh, the, the Great Commission's over, you know, and then just sort of tack on here at the end, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. It, it's very significant, because what he's saying is, yes, I'm giving you this, this commissioning. I'm commanding you to do this in service to me. But he's saying, you're not left alone to accomplish it on your own. And in fact, you couldn't do it on your own, on your own strength, on your own power. But he says, no, no, don't worry. You're not going to be out there all on your own. Like, I'm going to send you all over the world, and now you just have to, like, figure out how to do it on your own, and hopefully you bear some fruit. But he says, no, don't worry. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. He says, I'll be with you. And not only that, I'll send you my Holy Spirit. I'll send you the Holy Spirit who will be with you, who will strengthen you, empower you, equip you. And ultimately, really, he's the one who's going to do the work. You're just going to preach the gospel. But he's the one who will stir hearts, lead people to repentance and faith and into the kingdom. Right? So this isn't something that we're left to do on our own strength, our own abilities, our own, uh, our own efforts, and so forth. Yes, we're to put in the effort and, and be faithful to this, but ultimately we do it in the power, in the strength, at the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's really the one who does the work, right? We're just the tool in his hands that he uses, right? We go, we preach the gospel, we're faithful to that, and ultimately it's the Spirit who changes hearts, changes lives, leads them into the kingdom. So we're not left on our own to accomplish this. So now I, I sort of want to spend a lot of time on application here because I think this is something that uh, oftentimes we can come to the Great Commission and say, you know, yeah, I, I get it, Pastor Steve, I've, I've heard it, I've heard, you know, half a dozen sermons on it. It's not like it's, it's a new passage to me, but I'd say often the failure is in practically living it out. And I'd say for evangelism in, in particular, we'll talk about discipleship afterwards. I want to talk about uh, evangelism first, sort of the evangelistic side of the making disciples, understanding that's not the whole picture. There's also the discipleship side, the teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you side as well. But I want to sort of focus on the evangelism first. And what I'd say in regard to evangelism is we, we understand what it is. We understand that we're supposed to do it. We, we sort of understand what it looks like to be a faithful witness for Christ, to proclaim the gospel to those who don't know, who don't understand. I'd say really sort of the struggle, as I think of the American church, the Western church, the struggle really comes down to practically living it out and just saying, I'm just going to do it. I think we understand it all. It's just the reality is for so many, we just fail to faithfully live it out. Uh, and I think there are a lot of obstacles for us in regard to, to being faithful in evangelism. And so I, I sort of want to talk about those, but I, I really ultimately want to spend more time on discipleship because I think it tends to be the side of, of making disciples that's more overlooked. And I know that I've spoken on evangelism quite a bit. It's something that we talk about quite a bit here at New Hope Chapel. So we've sort of given it its due in a lot of ways that, that ultimately I want to spend a little more time focused on discipleship. So if it seems like I'm going 
going through these obstacles to evangelism quickly, it's because I am, in a sense. But I think we do have a lot of obstacles. In many ways, the culture around us is, is a great obstacle. We understand, yes, I need to share my faith. I need to tell people about Jesus, about what he's done for me, what, what, uh, what he can do for others as well, the forgiveness that we have in him, what he accomplished on the cross. But, but sort of the culture around us says, you know, you can believe what you want. That, that's fine. But just don't bring it into the public sphere, into the public arena. Like when you go outside of your house, sort of check that at the door, right? Leave your faith in your own private life, and that's fine. But, but don't share it with others. Don't be promoting it in the public arena, in the workplace, you know, while you're out and about. Sort of just, that's sort of the culture uh, all around us, and that's what the culture says. And I think all too often we buy into that, or we're sort of bullied into following it, even though we know we shouldn't. We realize, no, we need to share our faith. Even if the culture says, don't share it with me, right? We're not to respond and answer to the culture. We're to be faithful to the Lord and be faithful witnesses for him, which means sharing our faith, doing evangelism faithfully. And so I think that's often one of the things that sort of deters us and winds up being an obstacle for us. I think there's also the reality that often we're just uncomfortable with it, right? And certainly the culture is saying we shouldn't be sharing our faith publicly, uh, that sort of adds to the level of, of lack of comfortability with it. We sort of feel like, you know, does this person want to hear this? What if they're going to respond negatively? And it's just sort of a lack of comfort with it. I think the truth is, as well, speaking of opt- obstacles, is we just don't like confrontation. And, and I'm not saying that the way you share the gospel should be in an unloving, aggressive, confrontational way. That, that's not what I'm saying. It should be said in a very loving and caring way. But there is some sense in which we're confronting people with the truth and basically saying, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to believe or not? I'm not saying that those are necessarily going to be our words of telling them we're confronting with them and what are you going to do, believe or not. Uh, but ultimately, we really are confronting them with the gospel and, and, and there is a level of confrontation to it, even if we're not sort of belligerent in how we do it and we shouldn't be. And I think a lot of us just, we're uncomfortable with confrontation. We, we like everything all smooth and easy, and so we just sort of shy away from it. Uh, I think oftentimes in regard to obstacles, we just think we're not equipped to do it. I think that's often our mindset of, surely there's somebody who's just, they're, they're more equipped for it. They're, they're better able to, to share their faith. Maybe they, you know, other people know their Bible better than I do. They can answer those questions that people might have better than I can. Or, uh, you know, I'm like, I'm not great with people and conversation. Like, leave it to somebody who's more extroverted and, and they'll be better about it. We always think it's sort of this somebody else who's more equipped to do it. And I'm not saying that there isn't a place for growing in skill in evangelism. There is. But nonetheless, anyone who's a follower of Christ is sufficiently equipped to go and share the gospel, right? If you understand what Christ has done for you, then you're capable of going and telling other people what Christ has done for you and what he offers to them. If you understand what Christ did, it's not that difficult to go and tell other people. You are equipped to go and do that. Again, there's still a place for sort of honing your skill and your abilities and so forth. I'm not saying that there isn't validity to that, but nonetheless, right, if we understand what Christ has done for us, if we belong to him, we are sufficiently equipped to go out and share that with others and proclaim the truth of the gospel. And so the reality is we sort of can't listen to that mindset that says, like, I'm just not ready for that. I'm not equipped. We need to recognize, no, yes, there's a a place for being more equipped, but I am sufficiently equipped, and I'm being called to go and share the gospel, be a witness for Christ. I think oftentimes uh, we're afraid how people will respond, 
right? And, and we think, well, you know, what if they just, they just blow up? I share with them about Jesus, and they just like, boom, explode, and they go off, and they're someone who just doesn't like Christians, and they're ranting and raving, and, you know, you're just concerned that that's the response you're going to get. Probably it's not. Most of the time, you'll probably get sort of a polite changing of the subject by the other person, that sort of a thing. Most people are going to be polite about it. But you could get somebody who's just looking for a fight, and, and they're going to be argumentative. That's a reality that it's possible. But again, we can't let that deter us from just being faithful to what God has commanded us to do. I think sometimes we don't want to risk ruining a relationship, and that winds up being an obstacle. Maybe we have a friend who's not a believer or family member, and we want to share the faith with them, but we're just afraid, you know, is that just going to rock the boat? You know, I don't know how they'll respond. I don't want to ruin the friendship, right? And I can understand that, that line of thinking. Maybe they won't respond well, and, and what will that mean for the relationship? But if you really love that person, if you really care for your family member, your friend, whoever it is, if you really care for them and love them, then you will share because you understand that, hey, they don't trust in Christ, and they're under God's judgment, and justly so. And if you really love them, you'll be willing to even risk that relationship and sort of rock the boat a little bit because you care for them, because you want to see them come to faith in the Lord. So we can't let that deter us. I think sometimes what, what sort of serves as an obstacle for us is that as we come to, to, to the idea of evangelism, we sort of view it as a burden. It's like this, this thing I just have to do because the Bible says I have to do it, but I, like, I just don't want to. It doesn't sound fun. It's just, you know, sounds sticky, and again, people will respond poorly at times maybe, and I don't like confrontation and all that. It just sort of feels like this burden, and the reality is that shouldn't be our mindset. That's, it's not some burden. In in fact, uh, it's really a wonderful privilege and a joy to us. That's how we ought to view it. It's really a blessing that God has said, right, he can, he can build his kingdom and his church on his own. He doesn't need us, but he graciously invites us into this and says, join me in this mission. Join me in my work. Be a part of it. Uh, and it's just such a blessing and a privilege to be invited into God's mission in the world. And I even think just sort of practically and from experience, what joy it is to see people come to faith. That doesn't mean that everyone you share with is going to come to faith uh, and have their lives changed, but when, when you do have those success stories and, and the Spirit works and leads someone to repentance and faith, what, just, what a joy and a privilege to be a part of that and to see that and just to rejoice with that new brother or sister in Christ. And it, it's a great blessing to, to be a part of that and to be used by God toward that end. And so it's, it's not some awful burden that shouldn't be our, our perspective, but just a great joy and a privilege and a blessing from the Lord. I think truthfully, oftentimes as we think of obstacles, we, we all too often care more what people think rather than what God thinks. We're concerned, if I share my faith with this person, are they going to think, like, oh, he's just, he's one of those, like, crazy Christian people. He's one of those types. You know, and, and so we don't want that. We want people to think well of us and highly of us. And so we're so concerned about what other people think that we let that prevent us from being faithful to the Lord because we're not concerned about what he, think, what he thinks. We should be more concerned about the Lord and what he thinks rather than, than, than what man thinks. We should be thinking, God has commanded me to do this. I want to be faithful. I want to be a faithful servant, a faithful child of the Lord and just live out his command as he's called me to. That should be our mindset rather than being consumed with, well, what do people think? What are, you know, how are they going to view me? You know, uh, and too often we're consumed with what people think rather than what God thinks. I think in all reality, too, at times, doesn't mean this is all of us, but I think all too often we don't have 
enough of a, a heart, really, for the lost around us, and that winds up being an obstacle to us uh, faithfully sharing our faith with others, right? We don't have that real burden for them all too often that we ought to have, understanding, man, there, there are boatloads of people all around us. Every day I walk by people who don't know the Lord, who are under his just judgment, and that should break our hearts. We should have such a profound love for our fellow man, our neighbor, that, that our hearts are broken over that reality, and we should be motivated in love for them to reach out to them with the truth of the gospel. If we're really broken over the lost condition of our neighbors, then that will motivate us to share with them, right? But the reality is all too often we don't have that heart, and so that winds up being an obstacle, and we need to have that heart uh, for our neighbors. I think oftentimes in another obstacle is we're just not bold enough and courageous enough, right? If we were, then the, the little obstacles of I don't like confrontation or I'm uncomfortable with this and so forth or I feel like I'm not equipped, right? If we were just courageous and bold, those things would sort of fade into the background and we'd just say, Lord, I'm just going to have this boldness and, and, and courageousness and being faithful to what you've called me to. Whatever the results are, Lord, I'm just going to be bold in doing this. And, and we need that boldness and courage in, in doing it. I think oftentimes what winds up being an obstacle to evangelism as well uh, really is the fact that all too often we don't have the eyes to see the opportunities before us each day to share the gospel. Even for those of us who may would say, these other things aren't an issue, you know, I'm willing to share, I really am. I think all too often we sort of go through life with our daily life on our own, doing our own agenda, sort of not having the eyes to see all the people that God has put before us that day to be able to be a witness to them. And that sort of ties in with the next one, which is that I think all too often we sort of try to do evangelism. Again, for those of us who sort of, these other things aren't obstacles, and we say, yes, I'm willing to do evangelism, all too often we do it uh, on our own strength, our own ability. We sort of forget that last part of, of the Great Commission that says, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Hey, he's with us. We're not, the Lord is with us. He's given us the Holy Spirit. We're not to do this on our own. We're not stuck doing it on our own. In fact, we can't do it on our own. I can't change people's hearts. I can't make them repent and believe right and turn toward the Lord. That's the Spirit's work. I just have the role of, of proclaiming the truth of the gospel and being a witness in that way. Right? And so I think all too often we try to do it on our own strength, in our own wisdom, at, at our own guidance, rather than just saying, no, I'm just going to follow you, Holy Spirit. Just, just to do it prayerfully and say, Holy Spirit, put opportunities before me today to be able to be a witness for you, Lord Jesus, uh, and open up my eyes to those opportunities. To say, all too often, I'm just blind to them. They're right before me, and yet I don't see them. And open up my eyes to those opportunities. But again, even as we're sharing, just to be tuned into the Holy Spirit, and, 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 and the reality is the way in which we're going to share the gospel with individual people is going to vary. Some people, you might sit down with them, and they're just ready and open, and you just share your two-minute gospel presentation, and the Holy Spirit leads you to do that, and, and the Spirit's already prepared that person's heart, and they repent and believe and enter the kingdom, and, and that's wonderful. At other times, it could take years, and, and maybe the Spirit's just leading you to slowly love on that person and care for them, and just sort of bit by bit as you have opportunities, share little bits of the gospel and truth about, about, about the Lord, biblical truth, right? And so all too often, we might want to act on our own wisdom and sort of do things as we see fit, but the Spirit is the one guiding and directing us, and we ought to follow His leading uh, as He leads us in sharing our faith. And so we shouldn't be doing this on our own, but, but certainly in the power and at the direction of the Holy Spirit. And I think oftentimes that winds up being an obstacle as we seek to do it on our own, uh, an obstacle to fruitfulness in evangelism.
But I sort of want to put evangelism aside at this point, because again, I think a lot of these things are things we've sort of talked about. We know that here at New Hope Chapel, evangelism is something we aspire to, but it's not necessarily one of our strongest areas. Uh, And so we've talked about it a lot, and so I, I want to sort of not just spend all of our time emphasizing that, as I think is often the case when it comes to the Great Commission, where it's sort of all we see in this passage too often is evangelism, and we forget the whole teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, which is awfully important. That's part of making decisions disciples. It is this discipleship. So I want to take a little time to to speak to that and to say, hey, as we look at, at this great commission, this making disciples, to recognize it isn't just reaching people for God's kingdom. It isn't just the evangelism. It isn't right just, just winning souls, right? But the reality is, is then once someone comes into the fold, right, they, they become a follower of Christ. They need to be matured. They need to be discipled to be a faithful follower of the Lord, and that is what the Lord desires. And that's why this is mentioned here, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And with regard to evangelism, as I had mentioned, I think that Uh, we sort of understand it all, we just sort of struggle to live it out. I would say with discipleship, while we understand the concept of discipleship and what it is, uh, I would say that we actually don't typically in in the American and the Western church have a biblical view of what discipleship looks like. If you sort of, and so I'd say the issue isn't just practically living out, it's that actually for many people, what they think discipleship looks like, they just have a wrong conception, and it's not a, a biblical conception. If I sort of am fair and I try to look at, well, what's your average American church and sort of what's the view of discipleship, uh, what does that entail? I would say uh, what that entails in sort of modern-day America in the church, discipleship is, well, hey, once a week you show up to the Sunday service and there you're going to hear a message from God's Word and and there'll be some discipling that can take place and spiritual growth that takes place there. And and then they're going to encourage you to, to join a small group Right? It tends to be very much programized. It's sort of join this program and that class and so forth. Join a small group. Not that any of these things is intrinsically bad. They, they're good things. It's just that they're not a substitute for what we're going to see is, is, is true biblical discipleship. So it's, well, join a small group Bible study, and there you'll be in God's Word a little bit more, and, and so discipleship can take place there. And then it might be you know, some sort of program of a class or two or three. Maybe it's, uh, well, we have a new members class, and that's sort of part of discipleship in the church. And then maybe Maybe after that, there's like a next steps sort of a class to, to grow a little bit more in knowledge about the Lord and be challenged to live a little more faithfully for Him. And in a sense, that's, that's it. That's discipleship, right? In the midst there, there'll be an encouragement to daily, you know, spend your quiet time with the Lord in prayer and, and in His Word. But it, it's largely sort of this programized show up for these events. Sunday morning, right, there are a couple classes for discipleship uh, and, and be at your small group meetings. And that's there, that's discipleship in, in the American. American church today, and I think that's honestly a pretty fair representation of, of what discipleship looks like uh, in the American church. But I would say, you know, well, let's take a look at what biblical discipleship really is, and, and if we want to look at the best example, let's take a look at Jesus, right? And, and as we look at the Gospels, as you read through them, all of them, right, we see what Jesus modeled in regard to discipleship. What does it look like to disciple another? What does discipling really look like? And at its heart, it's really one life engaging another life. Or it doesn't have to be just one-on-one discipleship. It can be one Jesus with, with the 12, and he's discipling them, and even together in a group. But the, the, the main thing is, it's really life engaging life. It isn't Jesus saying, um, hey, show up this one day, and we'll have uh, our new uh, disciples class, and 
then, uh, you know, that'll be a four-week program, and then we'll have our next steps following after that, and, and you guys should get together for a small group Bible study once a week with me. It isn't just sort of this programized thing. Again, not that programs are, are, are bad. They can be a great addition, but it's not a substitute for what real discipleship looks like. And for Jesus, as he modeled, and we ought to follow his, his perfect example, what it looks like to disciple is life-engaging life, right? What Jesus said to, to the disciples as, in regard to discipling them was basically come and live daily life with me. And I realize that in our daily lives, it's not like you're going to spend every waking minute with the person you're discipling or the person you're, you're being discipled by. But nonetheless, it ought to be life-engaging life. And this is what Jesus does. He basically just says, hey, come and follow me. Just come and live life with me. And he teaches them, but it's not just, hey, we're going to have this one class set at this time overly structured. It's sort of as daily life happens, as sort of things just pop up as they're living life together, he uses real life circumstances as opportunities to teach on those subjects, right? And whenever you're doing that, instead of it just sort of being a cold, sterile, academic environment, let's meet for this class, not that there isn't a place for that, uh, but, but whenever it's sort of real life circumstances, that teaching is all the more memorable and impactful, and that's just sort of the reality, right? It sort of sticks in your mind all the more because you can sort of place it in a specific setting. It's all the more impactful in your life, it more apt to bring about change. Uh, and that's just the reality. And so that's, that's sort of the benefit, if you think about it, or one of the benefits of, of life engaging life discipleship. As sort of life just happens, things just happen, you just teach on those real-life circumstances. Not only that, but as you're engaging life on life, Right? The reality is you're getting to see one another living life. That, that's the person doing the discipling, sort of the teacher in the situation, getting to see the person being discipled. And you get to see their, their strong areas, but you also get to see very naturally where their areas of weakness are, where they struggle, where they need to grow. Right? If you're just sort of programizing everything and it's just a, a, an occasional class that you do, you're not going to know the people that you're trying to disciple. You're not going to know very intimately their struggles, where they're weak. And so you're not going to be able to tailor your teaching specifically to them and their needs. But when it's life-engaging life type of discipleship, you know the people you're discipling. You know their struggles. You know their weaknesses. And so you can really focus on those and teach to those needs where those areas of weakness and sin and struggles are. Again, even sort of flipping it around, you can look at the person being discipled, and they get to see the discipler living out their lives day after day after day. And there is this example. It's not just that they're being taught, here's what you're to do, right? It's not just sort of this classroom discipleship, and it's all academic, and you're to do this, you're to do that. But you get to see it lived out. You get to see the example, right? You can think of the disciples every day, not just hearing Jesus teach on things, but also seeing him live it out and back it up by example. Not just talking about, hey, you're to, to love your neighbor, you're to love other, others as yourself, but to see him practically day after day live out that, that command, right? And to show them day after day what that looks like. And again, it's all the more memorable it's all the more impactful, right? And so the person being discipled not just has teaching, but also gets to see it lived out day after day and has an example to really follow after, right? Now, of course, in, in Jesus's case, if you think of that situation, they saw his example. Of course, it was a perfect example, so they learned only by his, his, his perfection. If you think of real-life examples, that was real life, but sort of normal people, right? Not, not talking Jesus, but if, if we engage in sort of a discipling relationship, the person being discipled is going to see the life of, of the one who's, who's teaching them, training them, discipling them, and they're going to see the good stuff. They're going to see all the strengths, and they can learn by that example and, and follow that, that pattern that's set for 
for them, but they're also going to see the failings, because even that mature Christian is going to have his failings. But again, still, even in spite of those failings, the person being discipled can learn from those struggles of of the one who's who's teaching them and training them, and can learn even from those failures. And and even the person who's discipling, it's not like it's just a one-way street of, hey, I'm teaching you, I'm I'm the teacher, you're the student, you're the one learning from me and being discipled, but it's a two-way street. Anyone who's engaged in real life-on-life discipleship and done the discipling will say, hey, I grew as a result too. I have areas of weakness where maybe the person I'm sort of discipling, maybe they're strong there, and I had things that I could learn from them as well, and I've grown as well. And this is really the biblical model for what discipleship looks like. It's not just sort of programized events, hey, a certain series of classes, and now that's it. You know the Christian faith, and you're mature clearly, and you're done, or just sort of small group Bible studies, or come to the service on Sunday. Those are all good things. I'm not, I'm not knocking them and saying they're bad things, but what I'm saying is it's not like it's this wonderful, perfect substitute for real life-on-life discipleship. The real model that we see in Scripture that Christ exemplifies for discipleship is just engaging in life with others, right? It's just saying, hey, you, right? live life with me. Again, I'm not saying that if you're going to be able to spend as much time with the person discipling you or your discipling as Jesus did with his disciples, but there's real intentionality in saying, let's just walk through life together, right? And as circumstances come up, we'll teach on those, right? And there'll be times of teaching there, and you'll get to see my example, right? And my successes, my failures, and you can learn from that, even as I can learn from you, even though I'm doing the teaching, that sort of a thing. And it's just all the more impactful, Right, I think of, of uh, a quote from Robert Coleman in his book, The Master Plan of Evangelism. Great book. I, I'd encourage you to read it if you haven't. It came out, I think, in the 60s and is still sort of highly regarded even today, you know, 50-plus years, years later. Uh, and here's what he says uh, as he's talking about discipleship and sort of life-engaging life discipleship. He says, one living sermon is worth a hundred explanations. And I think that really well captures sort of uh, the reality of the situation with life-on-life discipleship, that you can sort of talk about a subject all day long, but the thing that really powerfully drives it home and and sort of opens someone's eyes to it is for them to really see it lived out. It's sort of the same idea of a picture's worth a thousand words, right? You can write a whole lot about some sort of image and whatnot, but nothing will capture it quite like an actual image, right? It's the same idea. You can talk about, hey, you need to love your neighbor, you need to forgive, or all this. You can talk about it all day, but when you see it actually exemplified and lived out in this real-life discipling relationship, it's just all the more powerful, and it really clicks, and it hits home. Uh, It's just so much more impactful, and I think that's really the impact, part of the great impact uh, of really life-engaging life discipleship. And I think Sadly, I think that the American church today has lost sight of what real discipleship is, that sort of life-touching life, uh, biblical version of discipleship, really pouring into people's lives, and instead has made it easier, and instead has replaced it with, hey, let's just attend some classes, do some programs, and then you'll be fine. Uh, And I think there are even certain reasons to that, and and there are obstacles, I would say, to discipleship. And so I want to flesh this out a little bit, but as we talk about obstacles to evangelism, uh, I want to talk about what are some obstacles to discipleship, this real biblical discipleship that we're talking about, which is to say, hey, really engaging in in life 
with one another. Someone, right, who's the disciple are saying, hey, I want to invite one or two or three of you just to live life, engage in real life with me, uh, and, and I can teach you and learn from what I've learned, and you can learn from my example, even as I still have failings and can learn from you as well, right? Sort of looking at that, that biblical model of discipleship, I think we see certain obstacles to it and reasons why people just say, hey, I, you know, I don't want to do that. I, I don't want to participate in that. And I'd say the first and probably one of the greatest is, is that it takes an awful lot of time and effort. It's a big investment. If you really think about it, right, just sort of deciding that, hey, I'm going to, whether you're the one discipling or you're being discipled, the reality is it's a lot of time and effort to say, I'm going to engage very intentionally in this relationship. I'm going to, if you're the one doing the training, the discipling, to say, I'm just going to pour out myself and my life into somebody else or, or several other people so that they can grow, they can be discipled, they can mature in the faith. That's an awful lot of effort. It's an awful lot of time and energy, right? And, and it's easy to say, you know, I don't have the time for that, or it's just not a big enough priority, and I have other things on my agenda that I need to take care of, right? Or on the flip side, if you're the one being discipled, again, it takes a lot of time and energy investment to say, I'm going to really put in the effort that's required to be discipled by someone else, to, to engage in, in, in life with them, and to, to be taught and trained by them. It takes an awful lot of time and energy. I think a lot of people just say, it's just too much. I don't have the time. It's not a big enough priority for me. And so they say, nope, pass. I'll pass on that. And instead, what becomes the easy substitute is to say, well, I do have time for one or two classes that sort of pose as real biblical discipleship. Or I can do in every other week small group kind of a thing. Or I can come once a week to church. Again, all good things, but it's not to say that just totally replaces and is a perfect substitute for real discipleship. And so I think people sign up for what has become an easier thing and less time-consuming, and that's why that's become what, what modern-day discipleship is in the American church, just sort of these few easier-to-do programs rather than real life-engaging life discipleship, just saying, follow me as I live life and learn from me, learn from my teaching, learn from my example. People are saying, it's too much time, it's too much effort, give me something easier. I think one of the other obstacles to discipleship is that, in reality, if you think of that type of life-on-life discipleship and engagement, there's an awful lot of vulnerability that comes with that, is you're just sort of going to open up your life to someone else, whether you're doing the training, the discipling, or you're being trained and discipled. Either way, you're sort of opening up yourself, your life, the good and the bad, to that other person. And even if you're the mature Christian and you're the one doing the discipling, there's still ugly parts of your life. Sin is still lurking in you, your life, and you know it. And the idea of sort of exposing that to other people and letting them see that, being truly authentic with them and vulnerable, uh, people don't like that. We don't like that degree of vulnerability. Vulnerability. We like to just sort of put up our facade where, you know, everything's great with me. I'm doing good. I don't have any big sins in my life. Don't worry. I'm doing great. And the idea of sort of, you know, living out our lives publicly with someone, all of it, and just letting them see who we are, including those weaknesses, I think it deters a lot of us. We don't want to engage in that. We don't want to be vulnerable in that way. And so again, we say, I'll take a, take a pass, a hard pass on this, this biblical life-on-life discipleship, and just give me again, just give me that class. I can do that and sort of keep my distance and not be vulnerable. That sounds good to me. I think a third obstacle not to say that you couldn't come up with others, but I sort of came up with sort of a big three, is that I think the reality is is that we're all too comfortable where we are now spiritually. It's sort of, 
you know, I, I, I know I'm not a perfect Christian, but I'm doing all right. I, you know, I don't, I don't see myself as some terrible Christian who has all of these horrible sins, and I'm sort of content with where I am. There isn't this sort of sense of real sadness and brokenness over the sin that's still present in our lives. There isn't this yearning for greater Christ-likeness to, to mature in the faith more and to just all be, be all the more faithful to the Lord and, and grow in Christ-likeness and sanctification. There isn't that yearning for it for that that we ought to have. And instead, it's sort of like, ah, yeah, I'm, I'm fine where I am. I'm, I'm doing all right. right? And, and if we're feeling fine where we are, then why are we going to invest a great way in, in this life-on-life discipleship? Right? That's the reality. If, if it takes a lot of time and effort, uh, it takes a lot of investment, this type of real biblical discipleship, well, if we're feeling fine where we are, we're not going to invest in that. We're not going to spend all that time and energy in that. And so I think the reality is the American church is all too content where it is rather than just yearning for greater growth and Christ-likeness. Uh, and we ought to have that yearning for spiritual growth and to be molded ever increasingly into the likeness of Christ. And that should be a priority of ours, so much so that we're going to say, hey, I'll take the time, I'll put in the time, I'll put in the effort to this real biblical life-on-life discipleship that Christ modeled for us. So I kind of sort of addressing evangelism, discipleship, some of these obstacles that I think are are just sort of practical obstacles to the two in our daily lives. I kind of want to come back big picture and and sort of summarize where we've come and ultimately say, what's our challenge? What's our application here? Right. And as we look at the Great Commission, as I mentioned, I think all too often we sort of lose every element of it. All too often it becomes sort of that classic uh, go-to couple of verses uh, that we just sort of go to when we want to talk about evangelism. And that's right and it's appropriate, but we often lose sort of a holistic view of it, which is to say, well, really, it's about making disciples, faithful disciples, which involves, yeah, the evangelism, but let's not lose sight of the discipleship as well that is very clearly present in the Great Commission, that this is what Christ is commanding us to do. He wants us to make faithful disciples, and that means evangelism, it means discipleship. And if we want to be a thriving, faithful, biblical church, right, then we need to take both seriously and make them priorities uh, and live them out faithfully. And I think if you think of a church that really is faithfully living these out, they, they just sort of naturally flow together. If a church says, hey, we're going to take this all seriously, uh, not just the evangelism, but the discipleship, and really seek to be faithful and in, in, in following through in evangelism and understanding what discipleship, biblical discipleship really is and faithfully living that out, uh, what's going to happen is this thriving in discipleship and evangelism, they sort of naturally feed into one another, even if you just think about it logically, right? If there's faithful discipleship that's happening and it's a holistic discipleship, that even if you think part of what discipling should be is a training in every area of what it is to follow Christ, which includes sharing your faith and being faithful to that. And so where there's faithful discipleship taking place and people are growing in faithfulness and commitment and love for the Lord, all the more they're going to faithfully live out evangelism and more and more people are going to come to the Lord, come to faith, and now also as you're faithfully discipling, you now have mature believers who can take those new converts under their wing and say, let me disciple you, let me train up you, right, in the way of the Lord. And then they're trained up and they're matured and they're all the more equipped and going to be passionate about going out and reaching more people for Christ and his kingdom. And again, now you have the mature believers to train up and disciple the new converts and it's sort of this wonderful cycle that sort of feeds into itself and and it's circular in a wonderful way. And so when a church is really faithfully living these out, there's just 
just going to be this wonderful thriving in the church, and God's going to be truly glorified in it. Right? And I think all too often we lose sight of the discipleship in the Great Commission, and, and also at the same time, I think all too often we separate evangelism and discipleship. And we say, well, on the one hand, here's evangelism, and that's sort of its own thing, and then there's discipleship over here, and they sort of never come together. And I want us to understand that these two go together. Right? Jesus brings them together in this singular command to make disciples. Right? He brings them together and says, this is what it looks like, these two elements. Yeah, there's distinctions between evangelism and discipleship, but they naturally fit together and flow together and very much in a circular way where one feeds into the other and feeds back into the other again and again and again. And so I want to see us really faithfully live this out. As we think of application, right, I just want to challenge us to, to see the Great Commission here, to realize all that it is, the, the call to make disciples, faithful disciples, which means that evangelism, it means that, that faithful biblical discipleship, life, engaging with life, and to challenge us really to faithfully live that out. Don't let all of those obstacles, those obstacles to evangelism or obstacles to discipleship, don't let those get in your way anymore, but say, Lord, I just want to be faithful to you. I want to be faithful in in being a witness for you. I want to be faithful in sharing the gospel at every opportunity that I have, just being led by you, Holy Spirit, as you guide me and direct me and equip me for that task. And also to say, Lord, I want to be faithful in discipleship. Not that small groups and, you know, all those other things or, or classes, Christian education classes, they can all be wonderful things, and they are. But to say, Lord, I'm not going to let that be a substitute for the, the biblical example that you set in regard to what discipleship looks like. And, Lord, I just want to be faithful to that, whether that's discipling, whether it's being discipled, both of it. And so I just want to challenge us to faithfully live this out to say, Lord, give me a faithfulness. Work in my heart. Give me that passion for evangelism. Give me that yearning for spiritual growth and to pour that growth out into other people's lives as well as I teach and train and disciple others. Give me that faithfulness. And if we really do it faithfully, I mean, the church is going to thrive. There'll just be this wonderful thriving in the church, growing in depth, in maturity, growing in number, and ultimately God will be glorified in it all. And that's what it's all about. So let's do it. Let's be faithful to the Great Commission for the glory of God. Amen. And let's pray. Lord God, Lord Jesus, thank you for inviting us into this mission of yours. This was your mission, your rescue mission. You came, you died and you rose. You did that work of making atonement for sin, reconciling us to you, O oh God. And now we are invited and given a role in your rescue mission to go and bring the gospel message wherever we go, to the ends of the earth, to our workplace, to our homes, our neighbors. Everywhere we go, we are called to bring that gospel message there. You have invited us into that mission, and may we be faithful to it. But we know that part of the mission is not just reaching the lost for your kingdom, but it's also as people come to faith in you, enter your kingdom to train them up, to teach them to obey everything you have commanded us. It's that discipleship as well and a biblical version of it, life-engaging life. And Lord, I pray that we would rejoice in this commission, in this command, this calling to evangelism and discipleship, not viewing it as some terrible burden, but just a privilege and a joy. May we take it seriously, and may you just give us a faithfulness. All too often, we let the obstacles get in our way for evangelism, for discipleship. 
but I pray that that wouldn't be the case anymore, but that we would just have a passion for both, a yearning for both, and live it out faithfully, that your church, not just here at New Hope Chapel, but that other churches would live this out faithfully, that your church all across the globe would thrive as they live these out, and may you be glorified in every bit of it. In your name we pray, amen.